I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. We live in a great time to start a company. The resources which were only accessible to big companies are now at our fingertips. Erika Brescia, COO of Bidnami, gave advice on how to start a company. We talked about what she learned at YC and the status of the company when it was admitted. Erika explained what Bidnami is building, and we had an interesting conversation around pricing strategies for software. At the end, we talked about her role as an investment partner in X-Factor Ventures. To learn more about the topics of the show, sign up for the monthly newsletter by going to thewomenintechshow.com. Thank you for listening. Erika Brescia, co-founder and COO of Bitnami, is joining us today. Erika, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Thanks so much for having me. You're an entrepreneur and an investment partner, but back when you were 21 years old, you earned your first management role at T-Mobile. What was that like? It was a little crazy, to be honest with you. It was pretty trial by fire at the time. Um, I was still in college. So I was finishing out my degree of studying investment finance at USC. And I started at T-Mobile really to see how they were going to open up an entirely new region. So uh, Voice Stream Wireless was bought out by uh, Deutsche Telekom under the T-Mobile brand. And they were going to open 60 stores on the same day, essentially, in an entirely new market, which was the West Coast. So... I went to join them first just to see logistically how they were going to pull this off. I actually thought it was going to be like an HBS, you know, study in action. And I was fairly quickly promoted into management. And I'll be honest with you, at the time, I didn't get a whole lot of training. They basically handed me this huge book and, uh, and told me to get going. And I certainly learned a lot. I did have a great boss. It was just a crazy time at the company. And eventually, I had the opportunity to go through a number of different management training and hiring programs. But at first, it was like, here's a book and here's your staff. And everyone else was older than me and had probably more time in the workforce. So it was a fun challenge, but it was definitely a challenge. So it was more of on the job training, because what I have seen sometimes is you need to not prepare for the management role, but have some sort of background, like leading a group, even if it was doing school or things like that outside of work. But in this case, they just gave you the opportunity and they were training you. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I was pretty good at my job. And I naturally was taking leadership roles within the stores and helping with a lot of different initiatives they had underway. So I think, you know, my boss, this guy, Lloyd Jensen, who's just a tremendous human being, recognized that I had some natural leadership abilities. And that's why he chose to put me in a management position at the first store. And then very quickly, you know, he gave me a few other stores as well. So there was no training in advance, but there was some, like I said, after the fact, and I went through a lot of interview and HR training and things like that, you know, down the road, but it certainly, that's not how it started at all. It was like, they had a problem they needed to solve and they thought I could help them solve it. I saw that you mentioned that your father was also an entrepreneur and taught you about this when you were quite young about 12, what sort of things would he teach you? 
That's a great question. You know, a lot of entrepreneurship to me is a mindset, right? And it's how you think about problems and where you set your ambitions and how you go about achieving them. So, you know, he taught me a lot of tactical things. I think I, I said in an interview, he was teaching me about like different types of corporate entity structure. But, you know, way before that, he really kind of nourished my interest in starting a business. And I'll be honest, at that age, I loved the idea of earning my own money and being able to buy stuff myself. Like <laughs> maybe some might call it a control freak, but I always, I always liked being in charge of my own destiny. And so, you know, I would sell all kinds of things outside my house in our little neighborhood. I had not just lemonade stands, but I tried to sell tadpoles at some point. And I had face painting stands with my friends. I had an arts and crafts stand. So, I mean, it started all the way back then, I think, from you know, just trying to start my own business. And then over the years, I went into work for his company as much as I could. And I, I just saw how he did things. He always talked a lot about how he managed relationships and how deals came together or fell apart. And, you know, the consequences of not being a good actor in a deal, you know, he's, he's very big on integrity and loyalty and taking care of you know, the people who are good to you and who are good human beings. And I think that definitely sat with me and gave me a way to think about how to build a business and hire and manage a team and do business with other companies as well, which is probably why I'm very focused on the BD at Bitnami. You know, obviously, as the COO, I have a range of responsibilities, but all of sales and BD rolls up to me and I'm pretty active there. And I'm sure that's partly a result of, you know, the coaching I've gotten from him over the years. What are some ways in which somebody can not be a good actor when they're doing a deal with somebody? Oh, um, well, certainly lying is not a good place okay. to start. Um, and people do things like that. I think not being open about your goals and what you're trying to achieve can cause a lot of problems and really slow deals down. So I try to be very upfront and direct about, you know, how I'm thinking about a deal and, you know, what's important to me. And, you know, if it's, we need to make money, my company's bootstrapped, you know, we don't have a lot of you know, tens of millions of VC dollars sitting in the bank. So when I'm working on a deal with, you know, a large company, I'll be very upfront, like this needs to make business sense for us. And I need to be able to justify taking people off of this and putting it on your deal. And that has a price associated with it. And if you don't like the price, then I'm sorry, but let's agree to be friends and not do business because I'm just not going to do something that doesn't make sense for my company. And I think a lot of people are wary of just like speaking up and, and telling it like it is. And that can really slow things down because, you know, people don't understand each other's agendas. And so they're going back and forth trying to, you know, negotiate a deal. And if you don't really understand the motivations of the other party, it's hard to put something together that really makes sense for both sides. And there are those deals, right, where it's a great thing for both sides. That's what it should be. But people often kind of lose sight of that and just focus on their own agendas. But yeah, I mean, there are things like that. I'd, I'd say another thing is, you know, running a parallel process and then not being open about that. You know, if they're talking to four different vendors about a particular solution, they don't necessarily need to say who they are. But, you know, I think it's pretty counterproductive to not say, hey, we're looking at, you know, four different options for this and we need to understand, you know, what makes you guys different or something. But generally, just like 
be a good human. I mean, I don't think it's rocket science, right? It's just easy for people to lose sight of that when things get very heated. You mentioned also an important point, which is communication. And recently I heard an interview with Jason Calacanis where he mentions this and how he always likes to be in communication with the people he's investing on. So every week get a report of how things are going because maybe if you don't hear for a long time, it can be interpreted as things are not going well, but he can also be helping and things like that. So yes, that's definitely very important. And let's talk about Bitnami, a company you co-founded. It has been called the App Store for server software. What are examples of server software? Sure, Bitnami is the catalog of uh, open source and commercial applications. So those are things like WordPress or Drupal or perhaps a development environment like Mean or Rails or it could be a development tooling like Jenkins and GitLab and things like that. So at Bitnami, we package the best of breed server applications and tooling and make them easy for people to deploy both behind the firewall and in the cloud um, in like VMs and cloud images as well as containerized environments. Why does the App Store model also make sense for server software? Well, I mean, traditionally, server software has been incredibly difficult to get installed and configured. And, you know, if you look at a company like Sugar CRM, which was a very early client of ours, they have a CRM application that needs to be packaged with PHP and, and uh, MySQL and Apache and all these different pieces. But the people who will be evaluating that application are traditionally business people, right? They're not IT folks. And I, you know, as a COO of a company, I don't know how to configure Apache myself. So what Bitnami does is takes all of those pieces, all the dependencies that each application has, and packages them up and integrates them to make it incredibly easy for someone without a technical background to get an application up and running so that you know they can check it out or, or use it for their own business purposes. That's not to say that we just cater to you know the non-technical audience. Actually, most of our audience is developers, but you know it's not particularly fun to have to build your environment from scratch and bring in your database and your web server and your language runtime and then make sure that the versions are all going to work together across all those uh, different pieces and then get it configured with your app, right? It's much easier and more enjoyable, hopefully delightful to be able to, you know, click a button, get something up and running, and then you can focus on where you're really getting or adding value, right? Which is using whatever the app itself is um, for whatever you're trying to accomplish. So, you know, that's how we think about it is how can we make it as easy to deploy a server app? as it is to install an app, say, on your iPhone or Android phone. Or it might be fun to do the full steps one time, but if you have to keep doing this for every single project, I can see myself getting bored by doing this. So definitely, it's very good to automate this, this portion of the pipeline. Yeah, and I just if I can add to that, I'd say, you know, a lot of the folks who use us use it in development teams, right? And what you don't want is five different people building their environment separately because then you can end up with a lot of tiny issues in your code, you know, or bugs when you try to put it in production because people are running slightly different versions of things. So the nice thing about Bitnami is you get 
consistency, right? You get the same thing every time. And not only, you know, do you get the same, you know, VM every time, but you can also get the same thing in a VM as you can in a cloud image for Azure or in a, um, you know, an AMI for Amazon or in a cloud formation template or anything else. So it makes it much easier to move across different deployment environments as well as have teams working in a consistent environment. Earlier when we were talking about what could go wrong when you're doing a deal with somebody, you mentioned pricing. What are strategies for pricing software? Oh, geez. <laughs> what are the things that you think about when you have to propose a number? Oh, boy. It really depends on the nature of the deal and what you're doing. I mean, when I was talking about the deals that um, that we engage in now, those are very significant deals with you know major vendors like Microsoft, Azure, Google, Amazon, Oracle you name it. And those are different because you have to look at the, there's usually some custom work that's going on, right? And some integration, there's some support, there's SLAs that you need to meet. So you need to take a look at the cost of actually delivering the service and being honest with yourself about what that cost is, right? You need to consider all the little details, like how long does it take us to put a deal together? Sometimes it's six months or a year. And I have, you know, some of our most valuable uh, folks working on on getting those deals in place. So there's a cost associated with that as well. So that is a much more kind of bespoke model. We have a model, but it, there are differences for each vendor based on their requirements, which are always different. In terms of pricing software more generally, you know, for widespread distribution, It depends on whether or not you're going into a new market, you know, like a new product that's kind of category defining versus, you know, going into a market that's really saturated and then you need to think about how you want to be compared to the competition. Um, it's very often that being the low cost leader is, is not the right answer unless you have some very, very meaningful cost advantages, you know, maybe some company developed a piece of software five or eight years before you. And because of that, it's like really expensive to run and takes a lot more developers. And now because, you know, there's always, there's so much modernization and efficiency happening in um, software development that maybe, you know, an app developed five years later is a lot cheaper to support. So you can look at that. But one thing I tell entrepreneurs all the time is like, start higher than you think. Like you might even want to take the price that you think you want to charge and double it because uh, most entrepreneurs dramatically underprice their initial product. And what that leads to is people who have expectations that it will always be inexpensive. And often because it's a new product, the support burden is quite high. Um, and you might not have all your support processes in place to be able to be efficient and things like that. So, you know, I don't think there's, like a magic answer here. And, you know, I'm not going to claim to be a software pricing expert either. I've, I've certainly been through my share of it, but I still feel like I have a lot to learn. There's a great blog called Price Intelligently that's worth checking out if you're really interested in the topic. I've read a lot of their stuff in the past. Um, but it's basically thinking through like, you know, both your cost of delivery and your cost of sales, but also how do you want to be perceived in the market with respect to everybody else who's out there? You know, do you want to be the premium product? Sometimes that's the right answer. You want to be the luxury brand, you know, as opposed to, 
the more mainstream one. But I think you're better off charging more and getting fewer customers initially and working through any kinks in your product and support and everything rather than underpricing yourself for adoption because I think that can get wildly out of hand a lot faster than people realize. And the extreme where products are completely free, is it normally because they have a lot of funding keeping the operations up and running? You know, I think it depends on the goal of the company. You know, I'd, I'd say most people who make a product free at least think through it <laughs> relatively well and they might have another strategy. You know, it may be that a piece of a product is free that's useful on its own, but that they want to sell a lot of more enterprise features around a paid version of the product. So they use the free product really for lead generation, right? And it's meant to help reduce at least slightly the cost of sales. It could also be used as a strategy to build mindshare in, in a market, right? Like we, we're doing a lot of work in the container space and there are, you know, a gazillion startups with various approaches to solving problems in containers, whether it's like networking or monitoring or management, things like that. And so a lot of companies will make something free in a space like that that's rapidly evolving because it's really important to establish mindshare, right? Like you want to be perceived as a thought leader, as an industry leader. You want to get users starting to use your tools because then you can go back and sell them something complimentary later. So, I mean, there are a lot of different reasons that you might make something free and it's not just like a lack of business acumen. I think it's you know, hopefully in most cases, a thoughtful approach to how do we build awareness of, or visibility for the company? How do we establish ourselves as leaders? How do we get into all these environments that might not just buy a product from us right away? How do we better qualify who might be potential customers? Those are all things that influence whether or not it makes sense to make something free. Certainly having VC funding is important if you have a high cost of providing a free product, but there are other companies who might start really small and just do things like um, consulting or professional services to you know, bring in some revenue while they're sustaining a free product for other reasons. So just to summarize this a bit, for when thinking about pricing, one aspect of this is the nature of your users. If you're dealing with enterprises, they might have very specific needs that you might need to put developers to work on to make sure the product fits their needs. So that can be a different type of price. There's also the free pricing where you really have to think about it and yeah, give it a lot of thought basically and start higher because support can be high at the beginning when the product is fairly new. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. <laughs> Let's talk about the fact that Bitnami works with open source. In an interview you published with opensource.com, you said that making sure you comply with all open source licensing is very important, but also a time-consuming task. What makes this time-consuming? Oh boy, um, I should have a lawyer on the phone to answer this probably, but it's a tricky subject because there are a very wide variety of different open source licenses. And when you look at what Bitnami does, we're combining a bunch of different disparate pieces of software into one kind of distribution, much like a Linux distribution does, right? And there are 
different components within a Linux distribution that are licensed under different licenses. But one of the challenges is that some of these licenses haven't really been litigated very much in court. So it's unclear how they'll be interpreted by a court of law. And different groups might have different interpretations of different licenses, and they may not agree. So one group could think that you're in violation of an open source license where another group wouldn't. And, you know, as soon as you get lawyers talking about their opinions on different licensing strategies and different license terms, you can get into this huge, like, uh, kind of escalation battle of that ends up in a lot of legal fees. The lawyers do very well. I see. But that's why it's just there are a lot of different licenses out there and some are more compatible with others than others. So it's just a lot to keep track of when you're talking about hundreds of different pieces of software. And Binami went through Y Combinator, which provides seed funding for startups and seed funding is the earliest stage of venture funding. How does YC provide an environment for staying motivated and productive? This is something that I've seen several people keep mentioning. I want to understand what exactly they do to the environment that leads to this motivation. Sure. And I would clarify one thing. I mean, Y Combinator gives you a bit of money, but it's not, I mean, for us, I think it was like, $15,000 or something. And then you have the option to take a lot more, something around 100 or 150. I don't even remember the specifics. And, you know, some people take that and some don't. It may have changed a little bit. Maybe now everybody just is automatically opted into taking the extra money. Okay. But Y Combinator is not necessarily about the funding. I mean, that's important for a lot of people because it allows them to at least live, they call it, you know, like the ramen lifestyle, right? Um, you know, eating very cheaply and just focused on building the product because people in Y Combinator obviously don't have jobs there other than the company that they're working on. So they've all left. They don't have salaries coming in is what I meant to say. So the way that they keep you motivated, I think it's a fewfold. I mean, first, they screen incredibly heavily up front. I think I mean, there were like four or 5,000, maybe more companies that applied for my batch of Y Combinator, and they only selected 42. So it's incredibly competitive to get in, and they know what to look for when looking for founders. You know, at X Factor, um, the seed fund that I'm a part of that's focused on female entrepreneurs, we call it grit, right? I mean, we look for people who we think have the staying power and the drive and the intrinsic motivation. So, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with who gets in in the first place. Um, but I'd also say that the way that the Y Combinator core program works is, you know, you go through this incredibly intense period of it's about a three month period where you have several meetings every week and they bring in speakers and you meet in small groups with the advisors at Y Combinator, the partners who talk you through various issues you might be having with your business. But there's, it's a lot of just kind of peer pressure and having this three month period where at the end of it, you're going to be on stage in front of every major investor in Silicon Valley and beyond to talk about what you're doing. So there's a very clear like deadline at the end. And there's a lot of, I would say, very friendly and healthy competition between the companies to see how far you can get during that period of time. So like you combine a bunch of already super motivated, passionate, gritty people 
with a deadline and then put them all together to talk about what they're going through every week. It's a pretty magic recipe for uh, business progress. And during this time, I see what kind of feedback can you get as a company and as a team? It really depends on the stage of your company. I'd say my company in particular, because we were further along than most, we already had 12 employees and you know seven figures in revenue. We've gotten more value out of Y Combinator after that core program was over, even though the core program was helpful. It's more about the Y Combinator network and the help and support that you get on an ongoing basis that's been great for us. But um, during the program, you know, we were looking at doing a, a small acquisition that they, you know, pushed us to do. You talk a lot about things like pricing, for example. Um, you talk about how to bring uh, more growth to the team, sometimes when and whom to hire. Um, it really depends on what challenges your company is facing and what other companies in our, your group are facing. You know, it could be a marketing messaging question. The nice thing about YC is they have a pretty diverse group of investment partners and advisors who have operating experience in a huge range of different industries. And so you basically kind of get lined up and you can book office hours with the people who have the experience that's most relevant to you. So, you know, we are in infrastructure software. So we were chatting more with the folks who'd spent time in that space other people who are more consumer facing would, would spend time talking to different folks. So, I mean, I, I don't think there's really any question that's kind of out of bounds for YC in terms of getting help. They probably have someone that can help you with everything from hiring key executives to branding and marketing messaging to scaling to HR issues to, and you name it, everything in between. Did you see common characteristics within the companies other than they're highly motivated and passionate people like the companies already had users. Some of them already had revenue. Was there anything like this? You know, the bar I think for YC has moved around a bit, not for the founders that get in, but in terms of where the companies are in their stage. And I think one thing that's really cool about Y Combinator is they continue to experiment to find out what works. Like right now they're doing startup school and they put a um, ton of fantastic content out there. I think they have 10,000 companies go through it or something, or that's the goal. I'm, I'm not up to date enough. I'm not an official YC spokesperson, so I should probably say that. But um, but they do a lot of different things to to try to find what works. I would say most companies had a demonstrated level of traction, at least. They weren't all making money. Um, they certainly had a very committed team. The vast majority of them have businesses that you can at least see a path to IPO. I mean, they're not looking to fund what you know we call lifestyle businesses. They're looking to build highly scalable, potentially VC fundable businesses. Um, but you know, I'm helping a guy. I won't name the company yet because I'm not sure if they're out of stealth. But that um, was from a few batches ago. That's doing some really cool like biochem stuff, and. He was a solo founder, hadn't even developed a product yet. He basically had an idea, but, you know, he got in and went through. And then there are, you know, other companies that were, you know, had millions in revenue and big teams. There was even one company I heard of that had already raised a Series A. So it's kind of... Um, you know, all over the place in terms of stage of company. But I think the business potential, except in the case of the nonprofits, which YC is starting to accept some of those too, 
Um, but the business potential and the scalability is clearly there across all of them. Before we finish, I want to talk a little bit about X Factor Ventures, which you brought up earlier. Can you explain a bit more what this is? Sure. So X Factor is a seed stage fund of $3 million that's focused on investing in founding teams with at least one female founder. It's a pretty simple model. We write $100,000 checks and we've got $3 million. So that means we're investing in 30 companies out of this first fund. There are, I believe it's nine and we're working on a 10th operating female founders as the investment partners. And I think that's what really differentiates the fund is it's all women except for our token guy, uh, this guy Chip Hazard, who is a, a partner with a VC firm called Flybridge. And he was the one, along with another woman with whom he'd worked before, Anna, who put the fund together in the first place. So it's him and, and all of the operating investment partners. And I think what's unique is that we've all built companies to at least a certain scale. You know, Bitnami has over 70 employees now in 11 countries. You know, all the other women have, you know, sizable companies. We're the only one that's bootstrapped. Um, everybody else has raised a meaningful amount of venture capital funding, although I certainly know my way around that stuff as well. And so... We're really focused on making early investments in really promising, you know, female founded companies and then helping those women with the initial challenges that you face when building out a business. And just like YC, you know, we have quite a diverse range of women working on the team with different sets of experience, even, you know, some are West Coast, some are East Coast. And so the idea is we're making, you know, a pretty broad range of investments. We've made Five already, but they're not announced yet, unfortunately, so I can't share the names. And those are in a very wide array of different kind of industries. So it's not solely B2B or B2C. It's not explicitly tech focused, although, you know, every company has a tech bent. But we are working on, you know, using our collective knowledge as a team to help the companies that we back to, you know, scale effectively. And in particular, if they're going to raise more funding, which likely they will, that we can help them through that process of putting together a great Series A um, and then, you know, being a sounding board as they scale the company from anything from, you know, how to build out the team to, you know, strategy. You know, I tend to help a lot on the BD side of things as well as like general operational and scaling and strategy stuff. Some of the other women are uh, deeper on the tech side than I am or have more experience. Um and helping with like, you know, lead gen and kind of uh, more of the marketing side of things. So the challenges that these companies are facing to get that venture off the ground can range from technical to operation money, I guess. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's almost no problem you don't see as a founder, right? From trying to hire the right people or figuring out which roles to hire for first. Um, to figuring out how to test your product in the market and get enough validation. You know, when do you officially launch versus just have some uh, beta or early access customers? When do you start charging? How much do you start charging? When do you open an office? You know, where should your salespeople be located? How do you put together strategic deals with uh, much larger partners? 
you know, I mean, that's just, the, you know, the tip of the iceberg in terms of questions you might have as a founder that that's looking to build out a business. And we've all been through all that before and hopefully can help folks, you know, more easily navigate the early years of getting a new company off the ground. And then, you know, over time, obviously scaling it into a much larger one. Last question. What are some of your favorite books or things that you like to read? I get asked this all the time and I'm embarrassed to say that I don't read as much as most entrepreneurs. Um, I have a four and a half year old and I work my tail off. So anytime that I'm not working is usually focused on him or my husband. I will say that I really liked the book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. I think it's one of the best business books that I've ever read. Um, and it was certainly something that I could identify with. And I thought it was was a very honest view of what building out a startup is like. You know, over time, I think I've read all the other big business books that people would tell you to, and certainly things like The Innovator's Dilemma, which is super old school now, but is still a useful concept. Um, the Four Steps to the Epiphany, you know, the, the work that Steve Blank and Eric Reese is doing, I think is really useful and gives you a good perspective um, and like a good model to think about how to proving out the viability of a company. So I'd say those were great. Now I tend to read a lot more just blog posts and news articles that filter over to me by, I like to use Twitter as like a filtering source. I make sure I follow people who, you know, tweet stuff that I find interesting. And I'm basically, it's like a weird kind of delegation, right? Just bring me the interesting stuff. So You know, I consume most of my most of the things that I read now in smaller chunks like that, as opposed to reading full books, because I just, yeah, I don't, I don't have a whole heck of a lot of time. Or like you said, that blog post, price intelligently, things like that, that are helpful, but they're not necessarily books. Exactly. Yeah. And there's so much great content out there that you can get access to and, and take in smaller chunks that I find that, you know, really useful. Well, Erica, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It was great talking to you. Thank you. It was a pleasure.